coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap. Malware that evades blocking systems, the story of getting into BSD for the first time, a fresh roundup, your feedback, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hello and welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems, networking, and administration podcast. This episode was streamed live on January 10th, 2017, uh, and is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. With me this week, for the very first time as, as our brand new host, is Dan. Welcome to the show, Dan. Hi, Wes. How are you? Oh, I'm doing great. It's nice to see you again. We've only met the one time before. This is our first live show, so it's a lot of fun. Indeed. And it's also your first show on this show as well. Yes, that's right. That's right. I've never been on TechSnap before. I've been on some other shows, LUP, obviously, an action show, but the, this is this is great fun. So mm-hmm. uh, let's get the ball rolling. Uh, it looks like we've got our first story this week is how about malware authors have found a way to evade URL blocking systems by swapping bad domain names with unknown ones. Can you tell us more, Dan? Well... Malware is often hosted on pop-up domains. Sometimes you'll see these domains with a whole bunch of very weird letters, and it's just there to create a domain that they can utilize. And I once worked at a domain domain name register, and I saw that stuff happen. It was really interesting. I I found those stories fascinating. Um, So sometimes the malware is resident on compromised hosts. Patch your shit. And as such, hosting locations and domains, as they are discovered, they're added to the blacklist. But the criminals have found yet another way in order to avoid the blacklists. This is spoofing. And spoofing is not new. Think of it as pretending to be someone else. And what seems to be new is the deception in the TC packets, or more specifically, the TCP headers. For some time now, URL filtering has basically provided uh, a way for organizations to block traffic uh, from domains that are known to be malicious. But as with every defense mechanism, uh, the bad guys have found a way to get around that as well. Security researchers from Siren are warning about a new tactic for fooling web security and URL filtering systems. The technique, which Simon has dubbed ghost host, is designed to evade host and domain blacklists by swapping bad domain names and inserting non-malicious host names into the HTTP host field instead. So basically what they're doing is they're saying, okay, I'm going to call www.example.com and they supply that domain name in the HTTP header, but they supply a different IP address in in the TCP packet. So, And so here, are we talking about, uh, this is malware usually running on like an end user system that's trying to call home to some sort of, you know, coordination server or something else? Exactly. So they managed to compromise your computer. Now they want to download their, the, the real stuff. So they found a way into your computer and what they want to know, want to do now is install the stuff that's going to do what they really want to do. So the, the first step is gaining access. The second step is in, installing all the goodies that they want. And this is what they're doing at that time is that they, they go out to their servers that are sitting out there and they want to download the stuff and install it on your computer. And getting around the malware URL blocking uh, tools is 
why they're doing this. Um, so the objective is, is to evade host and domain blacklists by resetting the host name with a benign one, even when the actual connection is to a malicious command and control IP, uh, according to a siren blog post today. Ghost hosts are unknown or known benign host names used by malware for evading host and URL blacklists, said a security reacher at Siren. They said there have been no previously reported incidents that they know of where malware actors have attempted to fool detection systems by inserting benign names in the HTTP host field. Now, that's just damn clever. Yeah, it analyzed, really is, right? We're not checking analyzed, for it. They, they analyzed what, what, the, what the blocking software is doing and figured, oh, well, if we just change this little bit here, we get in. Is there anything, are there any appliances, security measures that are in use right now that evade this? Is there anything that you can do or install and as an end user to make these checks? If Is there, you know, can you go to the next level and start to verify these things? Are there tools that do that? I don't know. Um, I think the only way, way to do it is through DNS and make sure that the IP address that they want to go to relates to that host domain name or... More, more specifically, if that domain name uh, actually lists the IP in question, but that's a lot of overhead. That that that's much more than just a quick lookup in a right in a table. Right. Instead of just doing a lookup, you'd have to do you know yeah actually resolve them before you can let all the all the requests through. That's a yep. that's a lot of yep. work on your edge device. <laughs> that's not trivial. Um, I don't know what they're going to do or do about this, but it will be interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, do you have anything else you'd like to add about this story, Dan? No. Okay. That's well, all. Well, then uh, let's move on to our first sponsor this week, uh, and that would be IX Systems. Uh, IX Systems makes amazing servers. They're, they're the first place I go when I need, you know, when I'm thinking that I need a new server and there's something in my life that's failed and I need to replace it. I think everyone on the network, you know, has talked about the FreeNAS uh Pretty much everyone in my life either has a free NAS or is envious of the people who do have free NAS situations. But they also make, you know, you need a custom server. You need a new solution that you, you don't quite know what you need. You've looked at the off-the-shelf parts. You've looked around at other vendors. And you don't, you know, the prices aren't what you want. The support isn't what you want. The configurability is not what you want. That's when you should really think IX Systems. Uh, they're a great sponsor of the show. Just go to ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Uh, that'll tell them that you know, you're interested. We thank you very much for doing that. They're a unique vendor. You know, I've certainly been looking for, for new servers, looking for you know, a certain system that needs a certain use case. But even when you think, well, I know what I want. I can just, I can just go you know, on the internet, sit on my couch, having, you know, having some dinner, pick out some systems. But these, you know, this is a significant investment. This is something you're going to be using for years into the future. This is something that, you know, for, for many of us, this is like a business-critical system, right? You can't, th these are not systems that you want to maintain or that you want to, you know, that you can afford to babysit. So IX Systems knows that. They treat every server that you make, whether it's just a desktop machine for your office up to, you know, a giant petabyte-scale machine for NASA. You can see some of their great uh, customers right there on the homepage, or you should also check out their blog. So they'll work with you. They know how important the server is to you. Check them out at ixsystems.com slash techsnap. And uh, thank you very much. All right, Dan. So we've got some feedback this week. Uh, it looks like some people are curious, how did you get started with FreeBSD? 
I like this story. It started in 1998. I was working for the New Zealand Department of Fisheries at the time uh, through a, a, a third party. And New Zealand was just beginning to roll out DSL. Oh, interesting. And I was fortunate to live on the same street as the post office uh, site. Uh, New Zealand Telecom was was uh, run by the post office section at that time. So just down the road, maybe four houses away, was where the DSL would run up to my place. So I was really keen on that because the uh, the signal strength would, would be amazing. So I mentioned this to some friends at work, and they said, well – you're going to need a firewall. And I agreed with them. I'm going to need a firewall. <laughs> I will need a firewall. So Jay, who was a systems admin at that time, gave me uh, a computer and some CDs. On that CD, I think was FreeBSD 2.2 point something. It might have been 0.7 or 0.8. And so I started installing it. Uh, I got it installed with a little help from a, a guy named Jordan Hubbard. Uh, he helped me out one day on IRC when I really screwed things up. Uh, Jordan um, helped me fix an Etsy F-stab that he completely screwed up. I had no idea what it was doing. I didn't know what DHCP was. I didn't know how to get a dynamic IP address. These were beginning days for those things, right? Oh, oh I, beginning for me. Right. I'm sure FreeBSD handled it rather well, but I had no <laughs> idea what I was doing in 1998. Um, so I had I had two computers at home. I got a third one from Jay. Uh, it became my gateway, and from there, I started hosting the New Zealand ADSL mailing list at home. Uh, that's when I started doing websites. Oh, um, interesting. I started keeping notes of everything I was doing. Uh, I was writing them down in in a physical paper notebook. Uh, and then transcribing them into an email to post to the mailing list. But that oh, got I love that idea. After, that got tiring after a while. So I started writing the notes directly into my laptop. Uh, sorry, my computer didn't have a laptop then. This is 98. So after, after a while uh, of just copying and pasting from my notes into the email list, someone would ask a question. And I would know the answer and it'd be in my notes. But the notes were just on my computer. So I uploaded them to a website and started keeping the notes there. I think I started calling it the FreeBSD notes or something like that. Oh, that's a great idea. Share, you know, that way you can just point people right there. Pointed them there. Uh, but these notes became so volu uh, voluminous, 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 that I decided to make it a proper website. And the FreeBSD diary was born. And from that, all kinds of things stemmed. Everything, everything I was doing was was winding up in the diary. Uh, to answer a question in the chat room, uh, I'm a New Zealander, uh, naturalized uh, citizenship. I'm a Canadian by birth. And, oh, okay, uh, I lived there for for a little while after university. So, have um, you been using FreeBSD ever since? Pretty much continuously. Dabbled with other systems, any other Unix variants, other BSDs. As far as I know, I've never installed Linux. Oh, wow. Uh, I, I've used it. I've mm -hmm. never installed it. Um, but I've in installed and used a lot of FreeBSD. Um, and I use OS, OS X on my laptop, mm -hmm. uh, FreeBSD on my servers. And I think 
that's about it. I don't think there's. Oh well, my phone has some operating system, but <laughs> right. the computers. But, but hardly stuff. important. If you don't use yep. a terminal on it, then yep. uh, well, yep. what do you care? Yep. Um, and that's about it. Uh, eventually, it led to me moving from software development into systems administration mm-hmm. because that's what I was doing for free and having fun at it. Right. That's kind of uh, where your interest started leaning, I imagine. Yep. And someone offered me a job, and that's what I'm doing now and very much enjoying it. Oh, yeah. I should move this way a little bit, showroom, just so the showroom can see what's in the rack behind me. Oh, I think they're going to like that. Take, take a little while for it to register. And we're back. And I do say, so is there, um, is there a bunch of FreeBSD running in that rack behind you then? Uh, yes, there is. Uh, there is uh, there's three, four boxes in that rack running FreeBSD. Two are tape servers. Uh, one is a development machine. And one is uh, a huge ZFS box with Ooh, about 20 hard drives. That's awesome. What's the, uh, what's the size of that array? Uh, I'll have to look it up. I think there's about these ten five terabyte drives and ten thirties, so that's a total of eighty. But it's probably more like about forty five to fifty terabytes, I think. Oh, that's great. Ah, that's uh, a... we'll have to do a walkthrough one day, and we'll have a look at all that. Oh yeah, that'd be. I think. Uh, I think I would certainly enjoy that. I'm sure the audience would as well. Okay. Well, uh, thank you very much for. Uh, Sharing all that that history there, Dan. I think it's helpful to for the audience to start to get to know you. I think uh, at, you know further sections of feedback will maybe uh, touch on some things. If you want to know anything about Dan or myself, please feel free to you know email in or post to the subreddit or send us a Twitter message, and I'm sure we'd be more than happy to cover it. Uh, so with that, let's move on and talk about our next sponsor, which is Ting. Uh, here you can see Ting. Ting works with us over at techsnap.ting.com. Ting is my mobile service provider. Uh, it's Chris's mobile service provider. Uh, and uh, pretty much anyone else who can use it on this network does use it. Uh, Ting is mobile that they, they think differently. Most mobile service providers, they, they want you to sign a big contract. They want you to put money down or lock you in for multiple years where you'll be you know, constrained. You won't get the devices you want. Not on Ting. On Ting, you can bring your own device. They have a, a great shop, which you should check out. Uh, if you do go to techsnap.ting.com and sign up, you'll get a $25 service credit. Uh, that's good for most of the phones in their shop, or it'll just uh, decrease that first billing month. So speaking about bills, one of the things I love about Ting is it's pay for what you use. Uh, you just go over to their rates plan, and you'll see, look at this. How clear could this be? You can just click, right? So I've got, uh, oh, I've got maybe three lines in my family. We don't use a whole bunch of minutes. We're kind of savvy about that. That's uh, just a bucket there. And you click in your text messages, how much data you want to use, and here you go. So that's $46 a month. That's that's for a whole family. And here's the thing. Any month you use less than that, you're going to pay less than that. It just It's just a great system. It makes total sense. You know, there's no add-on chargers for things. You get voicemail. You get tethering. They don't care. I mean, data is data. You want to use data. You want to use it for your phone. You want to use it for your laptop. This is great. Uh, I, you know, Ting is one of my favorite services. I use it personally. Uh, you know, I just want to backdoor into my home network. Ting's the place to go. $6 a month for a line. That's hard to beat. So again, go to techsnap.ting.com uh, and check them out today. Uh, our first story is talking about 2016's most vulnerable products. This is an interesting <laughs> list. 
Uh, let's see. You want to introduce us to what the most vulnerable product of 2016 was, Dan? Well, it turns out it's not what you'd think it was. It turns out to be Android. Now, I have a feeling there's going to be a few people upset with this uh, conclusion, but it's pretty clear from this list that the number of vulnerabilities in Android reported in 2016 was 523. Which doesn't sound that much, but yeah, that's a lot. And this is just one calendar year, I mean, just last year. Yes, so that's more than one a day. Coming in second is Debian Linux, which was 319. So they get under one a day, but which that's an improvement. Oh, yeah, that's definitely an improvement. And it's interesting to just see that, uh, I, I guess, just thinking about Android's wide de- development or deployment base, it, it does kind of make sense that there, there would be more things, and it's such a, you know, it's used by so many, not, not novice users, but users who aren't experts, they're not sysadmins, they're just using their phone for casual things. So I can see it being a ready target for people who are looking for these vulnerabilities. I agree. Uh, third on the list was Ubuntu Linux. Now, fourth shouldn't be a surprise. It's Flash Player at 266. So that's mm, uh, roughly half of what Android had. I would have thought it, it would have been more, but... I know, surprised. right? We're living in weird times where uh, Flash Player is now, I guess you could say, more <laughs> secure uh, than some of these Linux distributions. It's getting there. Um, now, number five, company we that I haven't heard of much much recently, but actually uh, five and six are both from Novell. It's Leap and OpenSUSE, respectively. Now, that's interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. You know, I wouldn't have thought that. We, we talk about them uh, sometimes on the Unplugged podcast. We talk about OpenSUSE uh, uh, fairly often, actually, and they're doing a lot of interesting things. Uh, I feel like uh, maybe it's good for them, but I didn't, I didn't feel... I did not see or hear that much about these vulnerabilities as compared to maybe some of the bigger names and maybe it's the wider deployment base again, but uh, for some of the vulnerabilities affecting Ubuntu or Debian. Mm-hmm. Now, six, seven, eight, and nine are all roughly the same values in, in the in the two, 220 range, but positions seven, eight, and nine are all Adobe, Adobe Reader DC, Acrobat DC, and Acrobat itself. Anyone in the... Room, want to guess what was number 10? Number 10 was the Linux kernel, 216. Interesting. Now, that does bring up some questions about how they uh, decide what, you know, so I guess it must be that the, all the Ubuntu and the Debian vulnerabilities were then user land vulnerabilities, or is it, would those also apply for if it's a patch just applied to their kernel, but not in the upstream kernel? I wonder. That's a good point. Because they, they have a Linux kernel listed under product type of OS, but it's not the OS. It's just <laughs> right. in, in the kernel. So it's 216 just in the Linux kernel itself. Hmm. Right. Whereas the next entry down is uh, Mac OS X at 215. Uh, but that's, that really is an entire operating system. I mean, it's right there in the name. It is. That is the whole OS. So that... It's interesting how a whole OS can have as many as the Linux kernel. I, um, that's very interesting. Number 12 is back at Adobe, and that's uh, Adobe Reader. And number 13 is Google Chrome. And to answer the chat room, Windows 10 from Microsoft came in at number 14 with 172. It actually tied for Chrome. So a single browser app, 172, had the same number of vulnerabilities as Windows 10. 
Hmm. A similar observation there. Yeah, right. I wonder about that. I wonder how they're measuring this. Now, number 15, Apple for iPhone, the iPhone OS, iOS. Boy, that uh, is a, that's a lot better than Android. What is that? Uh, let's see, 161 compared to 523. Yeah, I wonder how that's working. Hmm. wonder if they're measuring it differently. Right. Hmm. Or if you could do something to, um, you know, kind of measure it. You know, there's, there's yeah. this, you know, there's, there's less users. It's more of kind of a constrained ecosystem. Hmm. I don't know. I don't know. Number 15, numbers, sorry, number 16, 17, and 18 are all Microsoft. Actually, the rest of the list is Microsoft, but 16 through 18 are Windows Server 2012, Windows 8.1, and Windows RT 8.1. What is Windows RT? That I don't know. Uh, I believe that is the operating system uh, that they were using uh, on ARM CPUs. Uh, so some on, on some of their ARM tablets and stuff. I'm not sure what its future is going to be or if that's quite right, uh, but I'm sure Chatroom can correct me uh, and we'll correct it next time. So this uh, list, something that interested me is, so right now we've been talking about products, but the list uh, also has a rundown of what vendors of these products were had the most security <laughs> bugs. And this one kind of surprised me. Um. Yes. Um, you'd, you'd think that if you're a company that, that had a, a lot of products, you would encourage people to investigate your products and that you would welcome any reports of problems with that product. But, well, they don't allow that. But I can't think of who that company might be. But let's see. Who's leading out the list here? It's Oracle with 792 vulnerabilities in Oracle products reported in 2016. Wow. 793. That's crazy. That's a lot. That's oh, huge. That's, that is huge. Uh, and the next on the list is Google at 698. See, that makes more sense. Just thinking about the, the different scales of Oracle and Google, that, that kind of makes some sense to me. What do you think? Google has a lot of products. If you go to your account and look at the list of the products that are in there, I mean, there's an incredible amount of stuff in there. Um, so I'm not really surprised. If you were to break this down by individual Google product, I'd be interested to see what they were. But um, it, it is, you're huge, you're going to get a lot, of, a lot of bugs no matter what. And so I think that applies to both number one and number two spots. Yeah, no, I think you're. I think you're definitely right. Uh, so after that, we've got uh, Adobe at 548, and then Microsoft at number four, 492, and then at number five, we see Novell shows up again. You know, it's not a name that I hear much about. I really, you know, we haven't talked about it. I feel like we don't talk mm -hmm. about it on mm -hmm. Unplugged. I haven't heard much on on TechSnap before. It's interesting that they uh, are showing up on this list. I wonder. I wonder again. It'd be nice to see a little deeper dive and see what products that we're talking about here. I remember using Windows 3.11 with with Novell Token Ring, and that was <laughs> oh, that's oh, great. I, I don't I, late 90s. I'm guessing late 90s. Sorry, late 80s, early 90s. I'm I'm not sure where, but I know it was Bank of New Zealand, and we were playing around with that at that time. And I remember using a database. I think it was SQL base. I'm not sure who produced it. It might have been. Uh, Gupta Technologies at the time, but that was a that was a hot database server. We liked that one. Um, long time ago, though. 
I think that was the first time I started using SQL and really, really liking it. But yeah, I haven't used haven't used Novell that I know of since then. Um, but I liked it then, and it seems still a lot of people like yeah, it now. Yeah, clearly it's still deployed, uh, even if it does mm-hmm. have uh, some security vulnerabilities. But at least uh, if we found them, that means hopefully they're being fixed. Mm-hmm. I agree. All right. Uh, well, to uh, to move on, it looks like the FTC has issued an IoT challenge. Uh, this is an article over on Krebs on Security. Do you want to tell us about that, Dan? I do. Um, the main thing that intrigued me about this was the fact that they were actually encouraging people to find a way to do things better. Uh, here it comes. And it's not loading. And it's loading. <laughs> so, Surely Krebs is undergoing uh, some sort of DDoS at the moment, right? Just like all the times. One of the most lovely things about all these products and devices that we have sitting around in the house is... Some of them get updated. Some of them don't get updated. I know Alexa gets updated on a regular basis, almost daily. And by the way, how many in the chat room have an Amazon Echo beside them? And it just chirped up when I mentioned her name. Let me know. Um, One of the biggest cybersecurity stories of 2016 really was the surge in online attacks by poorly secured Internet of Things, such as Internet routers, security cameras, DVRs, and smart appliances. Fridges. Fridges are being used in DDoS attacks for some reason. Why a fridge can be compromised, I have no idea. It's just... I need my fridge to uh, be exposed publicly to the Internet. I just That's something that I need in my appliances, Dan. Yes, you do. You need to be able to check whether or not you have milk in your fridge while you're driving home. Yes, you need that. While you're stopped at the light, yes. So, the FTC's IoT Home Inspector Challenge is seeking ways, uh, seeking ideas for tools of some sort that would address the burgeoning IoT mess. The agency says it's offering a cash prize of up to $25,000 for the best technical solution, with up to $3,000 available for as many as three honorable mention winners. In short, what they're doing is they're trying to find a, a way to keep these Internet of Things in line. Uh, an idea, an idea, the FTC said that an ideal tool might be a physical device that the consumer can add to his or her home network that would check and install updates for other IoT devices on that home network. That's interesting. You've got one master device at home that'll update everything else. Yeah, that is kind of a, a novel idea. Maybe then uh, you can, you know, as long as that one, if you can maintain the security of that device, you have a better chance of maintaining the security of your network. I remember working on a commercial product to do exactly this thing. Oh, really? Interesting. So clearly it's something that the industry needs or is thinking about. This was back in about 2001 when we were working on it. I remember that. That's that's for another that's for another show. Uh, so it they're, they're saying it might be a physical device, or it might be an app, or a cloud-based service, or a dashboard, or other user interface. I'm not really sure this is a good idea. Let, let let's put a cloud device that'll let me update anything in your home. 
how's the security on that going to work? How am I going to make sure that no one else compromises that and then installs backdoors into all my devices that are already at home? I'm not sure about this. Right. I mean, it would it would need to be done in a very controlled way. And then what will that do for interoperability? What will that do, you know, do you then suddenly, if you want to make your own device, do you, are you suddenly expected to participate in this sort of uh, having updates rammed down your throat by these these other vendors model? It, it does seem a little like there's a, there's a lot of outstanding questions here. But it does sound like an interesting challenge just in regards of uh, it's a reasonable amount of money and maybe the, maybe some of them will come up with something that can help. Obviously, I think describing it as the, the mess of IoT is uh, quite accurate. The central problem you have is you need one device to understand how it can upgrade every other device. And everyone wants to have their own way to upgrade. <coughs> Pardon me. Right. Yeah, no, exactly. So... So how are you going to have that? It, it, it's not a it's not a trivial issue that you can resolve overnight. I tell you. Well, you know, I think you're I think you're spot on there, Dan. Um, you know, if you're if you're wary, if you're using uh, Internet of Things at home, you have some devices. Maybe you're concerned about it. Maybe you want to have your own projects. You need something to to host these things. You want to roll your own cloud service, or you would just prefer to use a cloud service that you trust. Um, you know, it's always someone else's computers, but those computers might be yours. If you need that, check out DigitalOcean.com. They are our next sponsor on this show and a service I've been using for, oh, I don't know, three or four years now? When did they When did they start? DigitalOcean is great. It's a simple cloud hosting service. It lets you seamlessly manage your infrastructure. You can deploy in seconds. They've gotten all SSDs. They were so early on that SSD bandwagon. It's ridiculous. Plus, they use great technology. They use the KVM hypervisor. Uh, they work upstream with projects. So they, have, you know, they've been working with um, CoreOS. They've been doing a lot of work with FreeBSD. So FreeBSD runs beautifully up on DigitalOcean. Uh, you can users can create a cloud server in fifty five seconds. Pricing plans start at only five dollars a month. And uh, talking about their pricing, it's it's just a great model. They have simple, transparent pricing. Oh, look, there you go. Five dollars a month, ten dollars a month. The ten dollar month one is perfect. Uh, if you if you go over and you use our code SNAPOcean, they'll get a ten dollar credit. So you can just go try have a whole month of a reasonable server. You got two gig, two terabytes of transfer, thirty gig SSD disk, one gig of memory. There's a lot of servers you can run there, especially if you are just running systems for yourself. You just need a couple things, you know, an IRC bouncer. Maybe you're you know maybe you're running a VPN client for when you're out at the coffee shop. DigitalOcean is a great choice for this. Plus, they've got data center locations in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, and London. Plus, Toronto and Frankfurt. I mean, this list gets longer, I swear, every time we talk about them. Uh, they have a simple, contr- con- intuitive control panel. They've got an API that is just beautiful. And from that, the community around them has just sprung up. You know, There's all kinds of third-party integrations. Maybe you're using something like Vagrant, or you want a, an app on your phone so that you can control, spin up, spin down your droplets as you need to. All of those things exist. Go check them out. DigitalOcean.com. Use the promo code SNAPOcean. Thank you. And uh, I think from there, we've got one more of our awesome Roundup story. Let's check that out. Ah, I like this story. This is just interesting. You know, we talk, we've been talking a lot about just how, on, you know, this program in the past, Chris and Alan have touched on it, how easily people can be tracked, right? Even Even when it's not malicious necessarily, there's just a surprising number of ways just by walking around, just participating in the internet that you leave footprints, that you leave trails. Uh, sometimes it gets a little further than that and a little more creepy. Uh, so this story is talking about how people are starting to figure out how to use ultrasound to 
de-anonymize Tor users. Tell us more, Dan. This is evil. Absolute evil, as far as I can tell. Um, it all stems from an advertising company or a series of advertising companies. I'm not sure. And to be clear, it says could be used. doesn't say it has been used or it will be used. It oh, that's a it good could, point. Could, could be used. So we don't know that this has been done, but it sounds like it is possible. So I'll start by describe by reading part of the story, and then later on in the story, you'll you'll see how this came about. Why would anyone think of doing this? But I think I think it's just total evil. It's it's the most horrible thing I've ever ever seen. Um, ultrasounds emitted by ads or JavaScript code hidden on a page accessed through the Tor browser can de-anonymize Tor users by making nearby phones or computers send identity beacons back to advertisers. Data which contains sensitive information that state-sponsored actors can easily obtain via a subpoena. So, my first question is, why are advertisers doing stuff like this? Why are advertisers uh, putting something on your phone that will that, respond to an ultrasonic sound? I mean... Right, the idea that that has been snuck into maybe some apps that you already have is, yeah, that, that's like, it feels like a backdoor almost. It's entirely unethical. Entirely. This attack model was brought to light towards the end of 2016 by a team of six researchers who presented their findings at the Black Hat Europe 2016 conference in November and the 33rd Chaos Communication Con Congress held last week. Now, that may actually be two weeks ago, but... The attack relies on ultrasound cross-tracking, cross-device tracking, UXTD. It, it focuses on uh, the research focuses on the science. A new it's a new technology that started being developed in modern-day advertising platforms around 2014. Why would advertisers even think that this is a good idea? So UXTD relies on advertisers hiding ultrasounds in their ads. When the ad plays on a TV or a radio or some ad code runs on a mobile computer or phone, it emits ultrasounds that picked up by the microphones of nearby laptops, desktops, tablets, and smartphones. These second-stage devices, which listen silently in the background, will interpret those ultrasounds, which contain hidden instructions, telling them to ping back to the advertiser's servers with details about that device. Wow. I, I see no privacy issues here whatsoever. Not at all. None. So, advertisers use UXTD in order to link different devices to the same person to create a better advertising profiles so that so so as to deliver better targeted ads in the future it's all about money yeah that is kind of always what it comes down to and if they can yeah exactly if you win they can just glean that little extra bit of information about you then that you know that bundled package of users and their information mm -hmm. that gets that much better mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so according to the article the mobile phone must have an app installed that has embedded one of the many advertising SDKs that includes support for UXDT. At this stage, 
state-sponsored actor can simply subpoena a short list of advertisers that engage in this practice and get details about the user's real-world identity. Hmm. I don't like this. I don't like this at all. In tests carried out by, by the research group, uh, they've intercepted some of the traffic these ultrasound beacons trigger on behalf of the phone traffic which contains the user's real IP address, geolocation coordinates, telephone number, Android ID, MEI code, and device MAC address. They're grabbing your geolocation coordinates. They have your longitude and latitude down to a very small area. Wow. I mean, and it's it's one thing, it's, it's creepy just imagining that happening to me, you know, just my own information. But then it's even, it's even more terrible to imagine happening to someone, you know, w- with a legitimate reason to, with, with people out there who may hurt them or in a government that uh, exactly. is trying to censor them. Exactly. And it just, it, it increases that mental burden all the time. You know, for a long mm-hmm. time on the internet, you could kind of just go, you didn't have to worry that much. Maybe there were some ads, but it wasn't a big deal. And now... Just yep. trying to keep track of all of the ways that you have to do or what you shouldn't do or what you should avoid to stay private or to keep some anonymity, it's, mm-hmm. yep. it's baffling. People have to realize, tell your friends and family, tell your politicians, tell your representatives that there are legitimate reasons for using Tor. There are legitimate reasons to retain privacy on the internet. You may have someone who is struggling against a corrupt regime. You may have someone who's just investigating a corrupt corrupt judge or a corrupt cop, and they want to stay anonymous while they're doing their research. That those are completely legitimate reasons. Stop assuming guilt of people using Tor. It's as simple as that. Stop it. Yeah, if we really can't have uh, the free society, uh, the free internet culture, the the kind of you know, and, f- and free speech values that we want to to live by, when we are criminalizing people who simply want to protect their anonymity. Exactly. Well, uh, thank you very much for that explanation, Dan. Uh, this has been episode three hundred and one of TechSnap, live on January tenth, two thousand seventeen. Uh, with you, uh, your new co-host, Wes, and our new, brand new host, Dan. Thank you very much for joining me, Dan. Uh, I believe if you'd like to be reached, you're at, at techsnap underscore Dan on Twitter. Uh, and yes, I'm please. at Wes Payne. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. If you'd like to see more, go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com. They've got a live stream, all kinds of back catalog. Check out some of the other wonderful shows on this network. Or uh, come join the IRC chat and be with us next time. See you next week, Dan. Thank you, Wes. See you next week. Bye.